When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do Third Eye Blind, Bob Dylan, and Bikini Kill all have in common? Well, besides all being awesome, they're all defining influences for singer-songwriter Kevin Morby, who is the subject of episode 26 of the LSQ podcast. Hey, how are you? It's me, Jenny LSQ. I've been pals with Morby for a minute now, but this was really our first chance to do an interview, and so it was especially awesome that we got to go long and talk about all of the things that he loved growing up and the important stuff that he was hearing as he was first playing music, both at home in Kansas City during his teens and then when he moved to New York and started performing in the band Woods and later with his project The Babies. And then his solo career started in 2013 with an awesome album called Harlem River, but it's gotten better with each successive LP. And that catalog most recently expanded to include an excellent new album called Oh My God that is accompanied by a fascinating short film you should watch after listening to this interview because it might make a little more sense then. I also want to say thanks to our dear friends Cyrus Gangris and Justin Sullivan for hosting us and for making space for us to record this interview. Hi, Jenny LSQ. The crazy thing I was thinking about is that not only uh, is this our first long interview, but this is our first interview ever. Yes. I never have we sat with microphones <laughs> separating us before. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's the friendship interview when we first met each other. Yeah, this is the first time. I'm excited because as I've told you before, I've been hearing your voice for years. And not only am I a big fan, you know, uh, it's a thing where the fan turns into a friendship. Um, but also my parents are big fans. And, you know, as you, the other night, you met some friends of mine who are big fans. Wow. You have a famous voice. What a way to start. Yeah. Thanks, Kev. <laughs> nope. I feel warm. I feel warm and fuzzy inside. No problem. Yeah. You, so the, earlier this week in L.A., um, it was uh, really just a beautiful event that you hosted there at the, what is that? The Masonic Lodge. Right. The Hollywood Masonic Forever. Lodge at Hollywood Forever, mm-hmm. at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. You know, it's intriguing to have just watched the the short film that goes with the album just days ago and listening um, earlier to the new album and thinking about how it fits into your catalog to date, mm-hmm. you know, raises for me, you know, a lot of questions that of my favorite kind, which is just like, how did you get to be this dude um, wh- where at this point you've had these albums now to refine what it is you're trying to execute? So I always think it's interesting to just, you know, look back and, and ask whether the sound that you're making nowadays is sort of the, to you in your head, the same kind of sound you were always trying to make when you began. Yeah, sure. I def- It definitely is. But it's also funny because in terms of the solo career, it's all happened so quickly so far. You know, it's only been 
five or six years and this is my fifth record. So I already have this sort of this catalog that's easy to look back on and see the differences. But at the same time, it's it's all sort of happened in a flash and the flash is still still going. I still feel sort of, you know, it's it's kind of hard to have. Um, it, it's sort of hard to look back at it right now just because I, I feel like I'm still so caught up in it. I feel like maybe in like 10 years, maybe things will have settled down a little bit and I can kind of look back and really get a, a you know, a, I don't know, really dig the long in. view. Yeah. Yeah. The long view. Exactly. But I mean, I guess the thing, the, the intangible thing that you're searching for, the thing that you're, the feeling you're trying to achieve, like when you play a song that you mm -hmm. wrote, like whether that's still kind of the same feeling that you were going for when you decided. Absolutely. You... For sure. That's definitely still happening. And I mean, there are obviously things that I can, um, I, you know, I can see and recognize changes, you know, I can, I can tell you the specific things that have changed in the sound. Um, and some of those are very conscious decisions. And sometimes it's things like you can hear my, my voice at 29 uh, sounds a lot different than my voice at uh, 25. And, you know, now I just turned 31, as you know, you're at my birthday party last night. Um, and I think my, you know, my voice probably sounds different at 31 than it did at 29. So there's some of those, those, uh, factors that I can definitely tell you about those changes and each album right. has its own sort of vibe, but, um, it's almost like the past five years. And I, you know, I even already have a record done that will come out next year at some point. Damn. Um, I already recorded and everything. Nice. And I kind of am, am envisioning these, these six records, these first initial six records are all kind of a part. It's almost like they're all one album or something, if that makes sense. Obviously, they're not. They're not meant to be looked at that way. But they're all almost coming out of this this um, this big uh, spurt of creativity or something. And yeah, if that if that makes any sense, like they all play off of one another. You know, it's like I wrote um, "Singing Saw," for example, which is my third album, and that album really spoke to Los Angeles. And you know, it was very orchestrated, and there was a, a lot going on, and a lot of different instrumentation and backup singers. And so for the next record, I wrote it very quickly, and it was kind of the opposite of that, mm -hmm. where the the landscape, um, you know, within the subject matter was to take place in New York, and I wanted it to sort of more reference New York bands like Velvet Underground or Patti Smith, and maybe have it be a little bit more minimal. Um, it's like I keep writing records that are trying to do the 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 complete opposite of the one that came before it. Um, right. If that makes sense. It does, but of course, I'm sure you must uh, listen. Uh, even yourself listen and hear that they have similarities from one to the next or that there's, that there's the, the things you can't resist, the sort of urges that you can't resist. No Absolutely. Matter, no matter how you try and re-approach it. For sure. And it's a funny thing to be like, oh, it's completely different than the last one, right. you know. And if I play it for, you know, <laughs> anyone, you, yeah, especially one of my friends, like, it sounds like you. It all ends up sounding like me and I've got these big ideas of how everything's so different in my head. But I think with your initial question, there... I am still sort of writing towards the thing or, or writing for the thing that was my initial inspiration. And especially having played in bands for so long, you know, my first record came out, my first solo record came out when I was 25. And for the first half of my 20s, I was playing in other bands and kind of learning how to do the whole thing and learning how to tour and learning how to write songs. And, you know, I was in a band called Woods, which I played bass in. And that band really taught me just kind of how to be on stage in front of people and how to tour professionally. And then I was in the babies and the babies was kind of this perfect way to begin fronting a band because I was in it with one of my very good friends, Cassie Ramone from the Vivian girls. And so she had already taken on this whole life of this star in this other band. And so being able to co-front something with her really took half the pressure off of mm -hmm. me, you know, and it was largely my songs in that band. But, um, 
it was it was kind of like I got my it was like my training wheels uh, front person job or something, and I was able to take both of uh, everything I learned from both of those bands and right around you know my mid twenties put it all into this this other thing, and like I said, it just seems like uh, it, it just gone by very very quickly. Right, but then. at the point when you decided to finally do your own thing, was it was it something that had been like building up for a while, where you were just like, eh, "I want to do my own thing. I need to do my own thing. It's only for a matter sure. of time." Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, and again, back to that that initial question where that that yeah, I, I felt like I had something to say that I couldn't say unless it was just me. You know, if it was just it had to be it, it had to like my name had to be so closely attached to it, and that wasn't going to happen until that point and. And yeah, I feel like I, I there's a sentiment in my music, and I'm not quite uh, sure like the specifics on that sentiment. I think you just you can figure it out by listening to it. But um, I feel like that always exists in my music, and that's what I needed to you know go solo to to be able to achieve. When you say a sentiment, do you mean like a musical sentiment, or do you mean a thematic sentiment? I think I, both. I think both are in there. Um, Definitely musical, which is. Did you did you have ideas for for those things as you were just first beginning to write your own music, or did they emerge once you were in the process, or did it take sort of actually letting yourself commit to doing your own thing to realize what you kind of wanted to say? Kind of both of those things, because you know, I like my first album. I really wanted to make something that sounded nothing like my band, The Baby. So I knew it kind of had to be under my own name. And I also, I just was, you know, after playing with four, the same three people for five years, and, you know, I love those people very much, but after doing that, I was just so into the idea of having, like, when you're solo, you know, it can it could just literally be anything. You can make a record sound any which way, you can play with any players, and there's just this, this freedom, and sometimes it's a little scary, too. You know, I think in a band, you have this sort of built-in army, and it's kind of like, you know, you and your, your crew against the world, right. and for better or for worse, when you, you do, uh, you know, step out on your own, um, it can be really exciting with all that freedom, but sometimes it's just like you out there in the middle of a field. Literally but, taking a photo of yourself. Yes, in a field exactly. For an album cover. Uh, see, see also my my album cover, uh, uh, singing saw. <laughs> there I am in the middle of a field, scared. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I just I'm really into the freedom of it. You know, I'm a huge fan of Lou Reed, and I love like if you look at his career, and I guess that's what I mean. Like maybe it's not really until you're on your deathbed that you can look back at your whole catalog. But it's like you look at someone like Lou Reed, and he has made some of these, you know. Um, almost perfect records. And I hesitate to say that he's made a perfect record because I don't think any record is ever absolutely perfect. I think that there's records that can be perfect with with their imperfections. But I think that like a career like his, you look back at it and there's so many records and they're, and they're you know, the, some of them are so wildly different from one another, but it's almost like his whole career. Um, the It's like the records are songs or something and his whole career is the album, if that makes sense. And I really... I think of my my stuff in that same way. I think there's a lot of people and, you know, everyone's different and everyone, you know, people can can follow this route and, and make incredible things and take five years to, to write albums um, by refining and editing their, their, their music. But I think for me, I'm, you know, I'm into like releasing first takes or I'm, I'm not too into uh, to, to editing my lyrics. And I like, I just love the process and I love just getting things out and kind of just like throwing fuel into the whole vehicle, if that right. makes sense. Right. So I, it's also interesting to me to think that some of the artists that I know are favorites of yours um, are dudes who, 
you associate most iconically with eras when they were older, you know? Sure. I mean, obviously, some of us think of Dylan and think of babyface little Dylan. Right. You know, fucking, you know, another side of or something like that. But nowadays, you know, you think of crusty old Bob (laughs) and, you know, you think of Lou... You know, in the years before he passed, mm-hmm. and you think of, you know, Leonard Cohen never not having been, like, a wise old man sure, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's interesting to me thinking about what you were saying earlier about your voice changing as you get older. And um, yeah. have you have you already sort of imagined what your your voice might sound like when you're an old, old dude? I think, yes, I have. You know, it's got to be pretty deep because it seems like that's the way it happens for us. It's funny because it's gotten a lot deeper just from just from singing all the time and like socializing and being sort of in this perpetual tour and constantly meeting new people i feel like you know i already had to quit smoking you know that was like ruining my voice and i had a polyp in 2015 oh, God. that i had to get re- uh, removed and i couldn't talk for a month which was actually this sort of very amazing meditative month of my life cuz i'm someone who really likes to fill the air up with you know, conversation. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like when it goes quiet too often. So sometimes when I'm forced to do that, it can be this sort of magical experience, which that ended up being. But yeah, I've definitely, you know, if you listen to my first record, the first song on my first record, it's called Miles, Miles, Miles. And it sounds like a little uh, child angel singing. I'm like, <laughs> whose voice is that? Like, listen to those notes. Baby Kev. It's Baby Kev. I, there's no way I could even get close to hitting those notes. And if you see me perform that song live, which I still do, you know, I, I, I have to kind of do it in this different way. But I've always really loved um, the limitations of vocals. I think, you know... Uh, it's it's like a very thing it's like a with a lot of men you know like a lot of the men singers that i like very few of them have amazing voices i mean there's people like you know i guess i enjoy like frank sinatra or mm-hmm. you know someone like sam cook or you know stuff like that like oh, there's a difference between a, per, a singing per, a performer of song with right their voice and a singer songwriter and exactly. the voice that they have that they can't avoid you know totally they get, they didn't get a record deal for their voice right exactly and and all those people are my favorite singers. There's that uh, there's that Silver Jews lyric that is all my favorite singers can sing. And I've always really related to that. To the point where if anyone says anything bad about my voice, I kind of, I, I hold it as a sense of pride. Like it's it's kind of, um, like I like that. I'm like, that's right. I can't sing and I've gotten as far as I've gotten. You know, it's kind of like, I also dropped out of high school. You know, I don't have like a conventional high school diploma. I did get my GED, but it's a sort of thing too, where any any step of success that I take, I'm like, I did this without a high school diploma. <laughs> PSA, <laughs> you're just like... It's you're... still the, like I'm telling my, you know, math teacher, like, see? Um, <laughs> but... Uh, but yeah, my voice will probably just continue to get worse. For <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's go back to that time, the time when uh, when you dropped out of high school slash prior. Um, what was you know? What's your earliest memory of feeling like drawn toward music? It's uh, my my earliest memory is is this funny because I've ended up talking so much about this band. You know, some people have their stories of like listening to the Beatles for the first time or hearing you know whatever Nina Simone and that made them want to play music. But for me. Uh, fortunately slash unfortunately it was Third Eye Blind but a great band that first record's great so good but it's a it's just a funny thing because there's if you google Kevin Morby Third Eye Blind I've probably talked about this quite a bit (laughs) and I will for the rest of my life but you know it was truly the first time you know I have an older sister named Michaela who I love very much and she um, was into the radio and I was you know about 8 years old and she's like 12 years old she would listen to, to popular radio and we lived in Oklahoma at the time and she got one of those sort of like 
I don't know if they were scam or what they were, but you could order all those CDs for like a yes. penny or whatever. Yes, um, it is what you might call a scam. Yeah, what is but the scam a corporate, there? Uh, sort of monopolistic corporate scam. Yeah, um, but anyway, my sister, she belonged to one of those clubs. You know, I feel like she pulled out like a, a tab out of a magazine and filled it out and sent it in. She got like 50 CDs at once or something. And I remember like Backstreet Boys were in there and Robin was in there. Um, Jewel was in there and Third Eye Blind was in there and I liked all the music like I was listening to all the CDs she was listening to and I liked those other bands but it wasn't you know and in the context of those other bands it's sort of more like pop oriented bands when I put on the Third Eye Blind record I remember kind of looking at the cover and the cover sort of obscure and thinking like what is this and I remember for the first time in my life thinking you know I was eight years old I was I thought every song on this thing is good and it's making me feel in this way that I've never felt before. It's 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 like changing, you know, I'm feeling emotions. It's like falling in love with anything, you know? Like you're like I can't believe I feel this way right now. The sound coming on the speakers is so powerful. And I was really big into baseball and I still I'm a fan of baseball, but I I played it growing up and all I wanted to be was a baseball player. And I remember having the distinct moment of hearing Third Eye Blind thinking, "No, no, no, I want to be a musician." So that was really the first time. And then that I feel like I kind of put that on ice a little bit. Like, you know, I, I just sort of got into music on the radio. I always wanted to listen to the radio because it wasn't a musical household at all. Mm. I think my mom, um, if I really dig into my memory, I can remember her listening to Bruce Springsteen, Michael Bolton, and Rod Stewart. Mm. Um, and she loved them, but I had no interest in those artists at that time. And my dad, and he, he, will, he would back this up, he just did not listen to any music. Um, he listened to talk radio, and that's about it. Which is funny now because my parents have become the biggest indie rock like cheerleaders. <laughs> but then they didn't. They just it wasn't a part of their lifestyle to like go to a concert. Or, Not at yeah, all. Yeah, no, yeah. never. Which is which is which is very common, you know. Totally, especially you know, like we're in Oklahoma. It's the '90s. It just wasn't, you know, it was a conservative place. It and also, I mean, I know you moved around a bunch, but how 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 much moving around was there before you y'all settled? Quite a bit. So my sister was, my parents were both from Nebraska and they had my sister um, in a place called North Platte, Nebraska, or no, maybe in Lincoln, Nebraska. They're there for a short amount of time and they moved to Lubbock, Texas, which is where I was born. Mm -hmm. And they were there for three months after I was born. You and, and then, Buddy Holly. Me and Buddy Holly, exactly. Which we can get to later, but it actually plays into a lot of my fascination with airplanes because I'm from Lubbock and he obviously passed away on an airplane. But um, then we moved from there to Detroit. My dad worked for General Motors, so this is why he's being moved all over the place. Uh, we moved from there to Detroit, and then we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then to Oklahoma City, and then finally to Kansas City. Right. And then actually, we were like two years into Kansas City, and my dad got relocated again to St. Louis, and he actually just moved. So we wouldn't have to move around anymore, because it's pretty hard on us. Right. Um, and he would come back on the weekends and stuff. So we were moving around like like crazy. and um, Until and you were... Until you were... 10. 10. It was and all then you ten. settled, yeah. Then I settled in Kansas City, and then right. I, I lived there until I was 18. Right. But yeah, you know, it wasn't like, there, you know, no one on our block, like none of the parents, music just wasn't too much of a thing, you know? Yeah. I think maybe my mom and sister went to like a Debbie Gibson concert at some point, <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> I remember going, I think the only real outing like that where I saw a famous person uh, is we went to see Bill Clinton speak one time, um, maybe at the Oklahoma City bombing memorial or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, I almost I almost ghost wrote Debbie Gibson's memoir. Really? Yeah. My that would be one. It's on a list of I almost ghost wrote that book. A, a that's list. great. Yeah. You should just write a book called I almost, almost ghost wrote that book. There's yeah. There's been a few now where it's just like so close. And you would have maybe almost ghost written your own book under that title. 
Yes, exactly. It's very meta. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's um, uh, I love that. But so um, I heard Third Eye Blind, and then yeah, I feel like that went on ice for a little bit, and I just became a fan of music and was listening to it, but wasn't actively trying to make it. Because when you're a kid, especially when you don't grow up in a musical household, there's no guitars around, there's no records around. It liter- and you live in Oklahoma. It literally seems impossible, like an impossible feat. Though I will say, Handsome came about as we were like living in Oklahoma, and my sister went to a pool party where Hanson performed. Oh, pre uh, Middle of Nowhere, which is their big breakthrough album. And she actually, we have the their like sort of CDR, but I get before CDRs, but like their homemade booklet of uh, a, their covers album, which is officially their first album. Wow! And I remember listening to that and thinking, this is okay, um, <laughs> but. But, you know, but it literally seems impossible, you know, like there's just, you know, no one who, who makes music. It's, I just remember seeing movies at that age and there'd be like a, a scene where someone would be playing a guitar in a bar or something. I'd be like, what is that? You know, and I'd like think about the, like, I'd look at the guitar and try to figure out like, what brand of guitar is that? And like, you know, do you think the guy wrote that song for the movie? Like, it's just so impossible to, to imagine, Yeah, you know, that reality. And when I was 10, we had moved to Kansas City. We just got in Kansas City. And my mom, um, for Christmas that year, she gave me a Sears catalog and sort of told me just to pick anything out. And I picked out um, an electric guitar. It was like a guitar kit. It came with a with an amplifier and this weird air tuner that like you blew into and it played the note and you would tune to that. It kind of sounded like a harmonica. Right. Because by archaic. that point, you had figured out you definitely wanted an electric guitar. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of had that thing that I was like, maybe if I just get one to show up at the door, I'll just somehow be able to play it. Kid logic. Yeah. Yes. Kid, exactly. Kid logic. Uh, so much kid logic going on. I remember also at some point we got a weird karaoke machine that you could also record onto. And it's like this thing you go into with no backup plan. But I remember getting it and being like, if I just put a tape in there and hit record and I start singing a song off the radio, it's going it's going to sound like that song off the radio. And I remember like, who, who knows what song it was, but I hit playback and I just remember hearing just my <laughs> child voice, like singing, you know, a wallflower song or something and be like, it's so bad. And just like, and that's what I, and I'd put that on ice. I'd like, Same I'm not black doing that line anymore. that was drawn on you was drawn on me. Yes, exactly. Now it's drawn me in. My little, what a great line. <laughs> I know, right? It's funny. I just played this Bob Dylan um, night in San Francisco where you're supposed to play one Dylan song. So the thing was called one Dylan song. And I thought it'd be amazing to get up there and do one headlight. Yeah. They didn't specify what Dylan, <laughs> but I, I ended up doing an actual Bob Dylan song. But anyways, um, so I got the electric guitar and I remember my dad um, and I like, okay, let's tune this thing up. And I remember my dad, he was tuning the knobs as I blew into the thing. And this is my dad who, like I said, he didn't listen to any music. He had no like history playing music, trying to do, to tune a guitar suddenly, you know, off of me blowing into this like little pitch thing. And I... I remember him popping like two or three of the strings. He just kept going higher. Like, I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. And then like the strings would pop off. So the fate of that Yamaha guitar ended up sort of being like a four string uh, electric guitar, completely out of tune that kind of sat in the corner, but I would still try and use it as a sort of like, I'd like play drums on it or something like, like, you know what I mean? Like I'd make some sound out of it. Right. But I eventually kind of put that away too. And I was just like, I don't, you know, it's, making music is literally impossible. I just cannot do it, you know? <laughs> and then when I was uh, uh, in seventh grade, I actually, uh, I was playing on a baseball team and someone on the baseball team was talking about their guitar teacher. They're like, oh, I take guitar lessons from this really cool guy named Nate Rogers. And he, uh, he's he got long hair, he's a metalhead, and he wears these cool suits. 
and I was and he I took one lesson with him I already learned a song and I was like no way and then I got that guy's information and began taking guitar lessons with him and that was really the beginning where he was a really cool guy and he he was a metalhead he wore these velvet suits had really long hair he's super cool um and also this is in the suburbs of Kansas where you know especially at that time and like the late 90s early 2000s there's just no one like that you know um and it so you you were you sort of like okay I could be like Nate Rogers I mean even if I I could I could just be the guy and the, the coolest guitar playing guy in the totally town. totally I think in seventh grade you're even like I could be the guy working at Borders who like is selling CDs yeah you know like yeah. just any any involvement with the the process of music because when you're a kid it's like you don't know how fame works really you know what I mean like in a way like. Billy Corgan seemed as famous as literally the person who sold it to me. You know, right. I'm like the bullish adults making money. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you have no fucking idea. And like, I mean, you were onto something there, right? I was onto something. something there. You until were right border, until the you know borders closed down. Um, <laughs> we're all just adults making money. We're all just, just adults, adults making, making money. money. You'd see anyone on any platform. You're like, they're they're probably they're probably rich. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, they're probably rich and have a big house. Um, but so. Um, so I, I started playing guitar and I started taking it seriously. And it was almost like he just gave me keys to the kingdom. I felt like this guy, Nate, um, he, cause I was never into, I didn't want to learn guitar to be this technical shredder or anything like that. And I, I'm still not like that. I really just wanted to learn the basics so I could start writing songs. So I was interested in, so I only took a guitar lessons as much as I loved it. I only took it for about two years until I felt like I, I knew everything I needed to know. Took it once a week for like two years. And then at the end of that, I was like, okay, I know all the chords. Now I can kind of just do my thing. And um, from there, you know, then I was, by that time I was in high school and then I started meeting a few like-minded people and getting really into like punk music. And um, so wait, so let's pause there for a minute. How did that happen? So, you know, I think the trajectory of that when you're living in the suburbs um, of Kansas um, in the early 2000s, I think it really, you know, you're into Third Eye Blind, you're into the Wallflower, stuff like that. Then you discover Blink-182 in your middle school. You hear Blink-182 and you kind of even still pick up on the idea that it's this novelty thing and like um, these naked guys running around. But then you discover, and I think this is the best gateway drug for a kid to discover, is Green Day, you know? Because once you discover Green Day, you know, you're, you learn about Gilman Street and like... I mean, just the best path. And also Green Day's not a bad band, right. you know? Like they're they're one of the, like Dookie's a perfect, speaking of, you know, if there's a Almost perfect record. Near perfect record. Exactly. Um, but once you find out about them, then it's kind of all over because like, um, you know, you read that Billy Joe's favorite band is The Replacements. So then you get a Replacements record and then it's like, you know, and then they're talking about Bob Dylan and you got a Bob Dylan record and, it's just from there. It's 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 fucking. It's easy, you know? right? And you and you, there were kids at school who were on that journey as well at that point. There was a few, though. I would say I was kind of the ringleader of it. But like, I had a friend, like my friend Sam and Chris were really into it. I had a friend named Sarah who was really into it. But like, I always felt I was like, like they were still a little bit maybe more interested in a few other things. But I was like, oh no, just the music. Like we we got to start a band, you know and do like silly things that middle school kids do, which is like you have a quote unquote band, but you never practice and you don't write songs. You just, it's basically just naming your friend group, you know? Um, <laughs> what did you name your friend group? We were called Chaos, which is uh, chaos, but just pronounced differently. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so that was our band. Never, uh, never performed, never, never even practiced. I don't think so. Um, but you know, you just get, you're just so excited about, like, I just remember like the way I would pick up on music and like, yeah, you hear it in movies or like, you'd see just some cheesy, uh, like ad for, you know, what an insurance company and a guy would happen to have a guitar in it for some reason or something. And you just be like, what is that? Like, what, you know, like, do you think that guy's in an actual band? Like just insane curiosity about music. And did you start going to shows? Yes. So definitely started going to shows at that time. And, you know, though Kansas City is small, there's still some like that band, the Get Up Kids is from there. Right. The anniversary and like. And that was right. That would have been right when you were in high, in like. Late middle, middle school, school or early or high yeah. school, yeah. Like that sort of emo movement. But like, you know, a band like the Anniversary, I think they're a little ahead of their time because they, they were like... An underrated. Emo, underrated. Underrated. But people were noticing, you know, bands like the Get Up Kids and there's Vagrant Records. And, and this is a perfect example. Like Vagrant Rap Records uh, released a, a Paul Westerberg CD, you know? Um, like he, one of his, his album Stereo came mm. out on Vagrant Records, which I, I heard because like I knew, you know, Get Up Kids were like these hometown heroes. So I started going to shows, you know, I, the first where, show... Where was the place? Where would you go see shows most often? There's a place called... Well, so the first few shows I went to were really big shows. My sister won tickets to see No Doubt on the radio. There's No Doubt lit in Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> and that was my first show ever. Like, now that is that is what, the year 2000, 1999 in a nutshell? Yes, exactly. And like, I remember my sister winning tickets and just being, you know, I was like, you are taking me. You can't take one of your friends. You have to take me. And we went Sandstone, Sandstone Amphitheater. It was called at the time. Now it's like called Verizon Amphitheater or something. But like, that was my first show ever. And then I saw, I think I saw like uh, Blink-22 and Green Day. I saw Weezer and Tenacious D and Jimmy Eat World. Bands like that, bigger shows mm-hmm. um, at arenas. But then my my first like real deal show, my my I was still in eighth grade. I was still in middle school. My sister was in college. She's a freshman in college in Lawrence, Kansas. And she took me to see, and this show really changed my life. It's my first time at like a, a proper bar. And this place is there. I actually just saw uh, that artist Lu- Lucy Dacus play there the other the other month. Um, it's called The Bottleneck, mm-hmm. and it's in Lawrence. And it's like a very old school, like tons of like black and white fo- press photos of bands from, you know, the past three decades. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and at the time, you could smoke cigarettes in there. And I was in eighth grade, and my sister took me. Thank God it was an all-ages show. But it was that band Thursday in Sparta um, oh, the, at the drive-in uh, uh, the shoot-off band. And very moshy show. Very moshy show. And like, it's a thing where my mom's like, you can take him, but he's got school tomorrow. So you have to be out of there by 10, you know? And it's like Thursday played at 10 and they were the band that I knew. And that's why I was going, I didn't love them or anything, but it was just like a show that I wanted to go to. Um, cause shows were rare in Kansas at the time, touring bands coming through. But I, you know, this speaks to just like my love for music at the time, but like Sparta opened up and I just remember, I never heard of them, but I was like, this band's incredible. And I knew that the guy, I knew that Jim, the singer of Sparta, uh, was in At The Drive-In. And I, so, you know, I, I just, at the time, I'd like seen them perform on Conan O'Brien, you know, a couple of years before. And anyways, short story, like I, I saw, when I saw Sparta, they blew my mind and we had to leave, but I wasn't even disappointed I didn't get to see Thursday because I was like, but I saw this other band, you know, right. I got, they don't have a CD, but I got their EP and I'm going to go listen to it front to back and I actually got to meet Jim and he was very nice to me. I was a little eighth grader, you know, my sister's like, my brother wants to meet you. And I remember just saying, I remember I was like, you did really good on Conan O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, thanks, man. Um, but I saw that. And then once that happened, it was like getting the straight dope. You know what I mean? Like these amphitheater shows seemed impossible. Like there's no way that I could ever be someone like that. And it's but Sparta seemed like, wait, Sparta, if I could be like Sparta. Exactly. Right. It was like, there's not, you know, like... 
that stage isn't that high off the ground. I could get up there, you know, like someday maybe. And then uh, the next show I went to was also the bottleneck and it was um, the Weaker Thans and the Promise Ring. Mm. Same sort of deal where I knew who Promise Ring was, but I didn't get to stay for them because it's too late. But I saw Weaker Thans mm-hmm. and then that blew my mind. And that's in eighth grade. And like you're a band like Weaker Thans, you're, you don't even know what kind of music it is, you know? And that there's so much poetry in those lyrics and it's not anything I still listen to, but it, it definitely it blew my mind, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that was all in eighth grade and I had this kind of, you know, foot up on a lot of people because I, my sister, uh, you know, I had this older cool sister in college and in the hip college town taking me these shows and there's a record store called Love Garden, um, which actually this hat is from Love Garden, which says Kansas on it. Oh, nice. Who are really good friends of mine and uh, the the owner Kelly, who still who still owns it and still works there, uh, has become a good friend. But I have this distinct memory of going into it for the first time. It's in a different location than it, it originally was, but it's like up this old creaky staircase. And I remember going in there, and then like it's almost like all these other things were just to get to that moment. And find you find this independent record store that's so cool, and you walk into it, and it's just all this memorabilia and all these cool posters and like just the vibe in there was so cool and it smelled like incense and like <laughs> not <laughs> chamba totally yes <laughs> and then, like it's just like a little leftover from the 90s vibe you know but like um there was something really new about it and like just seeing you know it's like empire records come to life or something and i remember going in there and just uh, my mind was so blown and the first two vinyls i ever bought i bought american water by silver jews and uh pussy whipped by bikini kill and nice first two. My I know. Friend. Thank you. Very yes. good. I'm very proud of those. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I had the third eye blind thing, but then <laughs> my first vinyl purchases were those. Yeah. And as I was telling you before the interview, actually, actually the first, like uh, the first vinyl ever, um, like those are the first proper LPs, but I actually did buy vinyl. I went to see the Get Up Kids play in Kansas City, big hometown show, and Super Chunk was opening for them. And that was another moment where I, I like, I saw Super Chunk and I was like, oh my God, this band's incredible. Yeah. I never heard of this band. And then I was like, wait a second, get up, kids are ripping this band off, you know? <laughs> I was like, I'm going to buy their CD. And I remember going to the merch table as an eighth or ninth grade, and I was like, oh, I'll take that CD. And the woman working the merch table was like, this isn't a CD, this is a, a seven-inch record. She's like, do you have a record player? And I was like, I just lied. And I was like, yes, I know what that is, you know? And then, <laughs> so technically that's the first vinyl I ever bought. And so when did you start, like, writing songs? About sophomore year. So sophomore year... You know, all these things are just steps and they all lead to the next big thing. But, um, you know, a little bit more just happenstance. My dad had bought this uh, this, this this pile of tapes um, from a garage sale or something like that. And we had this old uh, boat that would go out on the boat. And I don't remember exactly how it went down. My dad says that he told me to listen to it. Um, in my memory, I just found it. One of the two is true or maybe somewhere in the middle. But there was this Bob Dylan tape and... I remember being sort of skeptical of it, like, oh, this is like old people music, you know, like this is, you know, this is not current good music. This is old music. <laughs> like, look at the guy on the cover. And it was the the Greatest Hits Volume 1, it's that silhouette of him mm-hmm. on stage. And I was hanging out in the boat and like I would go out in the garage and like there's like this small little like engine boat that we, we owned. And I'd go out there and just like mess around in it and pretend I was on a boat in the water or something. And... I put the tape in and I remember having that very cinematic moment of looking at the stereo as the sound was coming out and the song was the times they were changing. And I remember, and this is at a point where I was getting into punk music and stuff and more political things. Mm-hmm. And to hear that song as a 16 year old, there was, it, it's like so much hit me at once. It was like a, a fucking cannonball just like, you know, took me out. I couldn't believe it. And I just remember thinking like, 
it, it, it was like hearing Third Eye Blind that time where I'm like, this is music. This is timeless music that was written by a young man who's now old, but it's still more relevant than other music that's going for the same thing being written today. And, you know, I was like, his voice isn't that good, but it's, it's, but it's perfect in its way. And his guitar playing's not that good. And it just felt so accessible and timeless. And I just couldn't, it felt like I had been hearing it my whole life, um, though I knew I was hearing it for the first time. Right. And you didn't have any preconceptions about, quote unquote, Bob Dylan at that point. No, other than like maybe like, oh, it's like Christmas music or something, you know, like it's like the Beatles. Like it's just kind of like a part of uh, maybe songs you yeah sing at Christmas time or something. Right, right. You know, like I thought it would maybe be more like the monkeys or something. Right. Like this cheesy thing that existed on like uh, AM radio once upon a time. And um, and what about like hearing his voice? What did what did you think of his voice? I just remember thinking that it sound it sounded so uh, like it it sounded like a real voice, you know. I just it sounded like a person. There was no polish to it. Um, uh, Had you been trying to sing yet yourself? And your, you know, were you yet at the phase of songwriting where you were, you know, singing to yourself, singing to yourself alone? You know, for sure, for sure. But you know, I think with a lot of those those bands like. Uh, maybe like the, the, the more like pop punk bands I was listening to or something. It's a little bit more singy. I remember, I don't know, it's so embarrassing, but I don't remember why or how, but I think one of the first songs I ever wrote um, was in seventh grade, you know, in the midst of being a Blink-22 fan, and it was called Village Girl. I don't know what it was about. Okay. Like, I think it was about being a small town girl. And did I know a small town girl? No. It's just, I thought that's what you wrote a song about. Um, and it would probably have been sang, and that voice is very embarrassing. Um, but the point being like, I felt like maybe up until that point of hearing Bob Dylan that I felt like I had to be a real singer of Mm -hmm. some sort. And then you hear that voice and then you, you know, you just sort of inherently know that there's a very powerful person and this is a person very famous, but wow, he did it all just like with that voice and with the guitar. Like, how did he do that? That's incredible. And then, so the curiosity just began there and then it just never, never ended. So you, you started doing like going back like trying to figure out what other old stuff you should be listening to kind of starting then totally well so a a really big thing happened there where I I heard that and though it did seem attainable there was still this thing that I was like but this is music that was made in the past you can't really do this anymore I don't think and then I had a really big moment of hearing and discovering the mountain goats the Mm -hmm. microphones bands like Modest Mouse right because you'd found this record store by this point so you're So you're now you're just sort of letting your instincts guide you at the records, or maybe they give you some info that's helpful. Absolutely, right. yeah. They told me about the Mountain Goats. They told me about Guided by Voices. Right. All these, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Modest Mouse, Neutral Milk Hotel, all these sorts of bands, microphones that are literally all those bands I just named. All their albums up at that point uh, were home recorded, mm-hmm. and you know, and then even something like uh, like what was happening with like Connor and and, and Bright Eyes and close by, not, close by, right. only three hours north, and that was a little bit for whatever reasons like. I, I wasn't as in touch with that. Like, I am a Bright Eyes fan, and I Connor, I think, is a genius. But, like, at the time, even though it was close in proximity, I, for some reason it wasn't that on my radar. But I knew that it was a thing that was existing. And, like, oh, this guy makes his own albums in Omaha, and, like, he's, he's becoming this thing. So that all kind of hit me shortly after. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, you can actually do this. And I think the biggest record of that time, the biggest influence to me, was uh, All Hell West Texas by The Mountain Goats, which is another nearly perfect album. Mm-hmm. And... I remember just sort of having the thoughts that like these people can make something at home, then I definitely can. Like it's like all these things, you know, hearing Bob Dylan and, and, and seeing these bands at, at bars like the bottleneck and then and then finally hearing these home recorded bands, it's like, Oh, I definitely can do it, you know? So did you start? 
I did. I got a four track, you know, sophomore year of high school, I got a four track and I, I was like playing around town um, under my own name. You know, I started that that year, which was really exhilarating and terrifying, but amazing. And, and I immediately had this payoff, you know, and the first show I ever played, I opened for someone who's still a dear friend of mine. His name's Ben Summers. And he's a singer songwriter. He's maybe like five or six years older than me. And he lived in Chicago and he came back to town to like play over the holidays or something. And, you know, I asked to open up or maybe he even asked me and the, my first show ever under my own name. So terrifying. I still think about like, there was like three days leading up to it, you know, where I was like, having trouble sleeping, you know? You're like, dear God, I was dear like, God. make the like bookstore that it's supposed to happen in, like get blown <laughs> away in a storm or something. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, it was at this bookstore called Prospero's and um, and I do remember having this thing, you know, and this sounds egotistical, but I, it's, it's just a thought that I had. And I remember being there and I remember having been nervous for days, but what is my, you know, like the show began and I was the first act before Ben, I remember going up to the microphone and being like, I'm going to, I'm going to be good at this. Like I, I just had a, I was like, I meant to do this. I, I need to do this. And, um, and I remember everyone's reaction. I think they were a little stunned because it was kind of strange music. It was like listening to someone who didn't really know how to write a song or how to quite figure out exactly what a song was or what my voice was, you know, but I think there was some passion in there. It, people could just pick up on the fact that I was really serious about it. And were you playing acoustic guitar? I was playing that? acoustic yeah. guitar. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so began uh, me sort of playing around town. And I feel I was like the well-respected sort of songwriter guy around town. And um, at that time in Kansas City, it was a really cool scene. And a town like Kansas City, now it's completely changed in the way that all these cities have changed, where tech has come in and who even knows what's happening creatively there anymore. But at the time, it was a very bombed out city. And it was just this sort of lawless wonderland in the middle of America. And so it was very DIY. And... Um, uh, DIY in a lot, you know, in a way that like LA used to be or, or New York, but there weren't that many people. It was like the mm -hmm. same 25 people or something. Right. And we were all in each other's bands and each band was kind of different. So like any bill would be like a punk band or like even like a jazz band or, you know, then, a uh, uh, you know, a hardcore band. And then, then I'd be the singer song. Right. Band, right. You know? And so did the fact that you were gaining, that you were able to gig and were like, had confidence about it early. Is that why you stopped going to school? No, not really. No, no. I, I was at that time. I was also having really bad, uh, panic attack and anxiety issues, um, which kind of came out of nowhere, um, in my sophomore year of high school. And, um, but in a way they, they both had a lot to do with one another and they kind of just blindsided me. I kind of just had this, this weird, um, I don't like moment of clarity or something like, I feel like, you know, you go, you're, you're born into this world and you don't really think about it as a child and something happened around that age and may, it may or may not have come out of like an experience of smoking too much weed. But like I had a moment where I just that sort of cheesy cinematic thing where I felt, um, so I was like, what is the world? The world is so big. I'm so small. And like, I couldn't handle that thought. Um, it's, it's really just as simple as that. And it, it, it just became this crazy time in my life where I was just having a normal day one day and I was with some friends and we're out riding bikes and I was standing in line at a restaurant and this thought hit me, this like impending fear hit me that, uh, I was just so afraid I was going to die for some reason. I didn't know why or how, but I thought I was going to die. And, um, it was just the beginning of this long journey of panic attacks. Um, it was like this crazy feeling. And then 
And then those thoughts just snowballed and yeah, thinking like I'm so small and the universe is so big and what, what could it possibly be? And just all these larger questions I, I literally just couldn't wrap my mind around or calm down about. And I'd always been a bad, a bad student in high school. I was, I, I was failing out uh, starting my freshman year, but like I was a pretty good kid though. So it wasn't like I was on drugs or I was, uh, you know, getting in trouble with the law or something and failing out. It was like, oh, Kevin's a good kid and he's friends and he seems pretty mentally healthy, but he just, he hates school. You know, it's just as simple as that. But once I started having the panic attacks, it was like I physically couldn't go to school. It was hard for me to leave the house, you know. Hey, you were already playing show. This is around the same time as you're playing shows? It's or? actually a little bit before. Right. Um, and then it really plays into the playing shows thing because that all sort of became uh, this big sense of uh, therapy for me. And like once I started doing that, I sort of broke out of the mold of just knowing kids from my high school. And, you know, I met the other creative kids in my town and in, in Kansas City. And um, at- So but you weren't, I'm just intrigued because you, you had already said you weren't, you didn't feel nervous about playing a show when you got up there. You were nervous about the impending show, but in the moment of being on stage, you felt calm. Absolutely. And that's something I still feel to this day. You know, my girlfriend, who you know, Katie yeah. Crutchfield, aka Waxahachie, we always... It, it's, podcast guest from last year. Yes, podcast, <laughs> LSQ, an LSQ uh, podcast alumni. We, it's funny, just the other day we were talking about how before my show at Masonic Lodge a couple nights ago, I was I was pacing back and forth backstage and I was like, I can't believe in moments I'm going to have a guitar in my hand because if you ask me right now while I'm nervously pacing around backstage that seems so far away like if you put a guitar in my hand I wouldn't be able to play Mm. but once a guitar is in your hand as a performer the world suddenly makes sense Mm. and I think that's what I felt walking up to the microphone to play at Prospero's Books to 25 people for the first time where I was so nervous about it happening but the moment I was in position I was I was ready for it. And, right. it, and it felt like, oh, this is the this is the best feeling in the whole entire world, you know. Right. But so that did that all kind of like that was definitely uh, around the time of the panic attacks, but they've been a little bit more contained at that point. Because mm. um, this moment did happen where I was meeting kids, the more shows I went to and stuff. I was I was meeting more kids who lived more properly in Kansas City. You know, I live pretty far out in the suburbs. And, you know, the further you go out in the suburbs, like the more uh, conservative and strict it becomes. Mm-hmm. And then I met all these kids who had more liberal parents and, and uh, just a different way of life, you know. And once I started kind of becoming a part of that, that all kind of played into me getting over my panic attacks, if that if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And I met people like Anna St. Louis, uh, who's a dear friend of mine who I put mm-hmm. out a record. She's someone I grew up with. She's a perfect example of like, I remember meeting her and right. I never met someone like her. Like she had a Chelsea haircut at the time and like, you know, she was this cool person and her mom owned this hip restaurant mm-hmm. and her stepdad at the time, like, you know, listened to things like Bob Dylan and Neil Young and Anna for my 17th birthday, she gave me a, a vinyl copy of Harvest, you know, right. um, yeah, I mean, I think it, kids sometimes just lack of experience once you realize how scary the world is, but mm-hmm. you haven't seen that it, you can survive it enough it, times. Absolutely. It's like, um, and and do you still sort of ha- is panic still a thing for you? It's definitely in there, but I feel like because of my intense experience with it, I mean, it it hit me, it kind of blindsided me, and I had no idea what it was. And it's kind of going back to the thing like when I was in Oklahoma as a kid, playing music seemed impossible. You know, like when you're young, before you know the world can be so accessible, and especially in those times before uh, iPhones and stuff like that, the world, like, it just seemed like the world is just what you know of it, you know? I was like, the world is just this suburb that I live in, and it's, um, 
even though sometimes I get to go to these shows and stuff, like I'll never leave this town. I'll never do any, you know, like I'll never get out of here. So I don't, in the, these, these big larger than life thoughts that no one can really answer were hitting me and I, I just felt crazy by them. And so, you know, I started going to therapy. I started being put on antidepressants, stuff like that. And like that sophomore year of high school really became about like my mental health and like just containing that. And I went to like an outpatient. Um, Cause your parents were like, we got to work on that. We got to do Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you know, they were just kind of, they were oblivious to what was happening. You know, they right. were like, what is wrong with our son? You know, like right. why? And like I said, like my dad was living in St. Louis at the time. And my mom's mom was actually uh, dying around that time. And my mm. sister was in college. So we're all kind of scattered. And it was just, a, yeah, it was a very strange time. And I learned a lot. It's one of those things that it was horrible and horrifying while it was happening, but it really changed my life because when I came on the other side of it, so, you know, I, I was on antidepressants and I, at a point I was prescribed Xanax and I was taking sleeping pills just to be able to calm down and mm-hmm. to be able to like sleep properly. But when I came out of all of that on the other side of it, um, which really happened in my junior year of high school, which is my last year of high school, um, I kind of got this hippy dippy uh, uh, a therapist who, you know, I saw a couple more like conventional therapists um, at first who, I had this one therapist who just very suburban, very cookie cutter guy who would just say like, oh, when you're having a panic attack, you know, why don't you just go get, why don't you go to Sonic and like get a, get a cold drink, you know, like that type of guy who I, you know. You've seen the movie Thumbsucker, have you? Yes, seen I have seen that actually. Some of this is reminding me For of sure. That. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's, is it's, one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's great. I haven't Keanu, seen it in a long time. Keanu is great in that movie. I forgot Keanu's in that. Um, He's the dentist who tells the kid, like, find your spirit animal. Well, so <laughs> that character, like, that that kind of guy was this, uh, was uh, Dr. Obloff, mm. who I, I ended up seeing, who's the first, like, he, he listened to NPR, probably the first time I ever heard NPR was, like, you know, it very quietly playing in his waiting room. And I was like, what are these, mo- you know, monotone voices? Like... <laughs> <laughs> but he was really the first person. And I re- it's like one of those things where I, I remember going in and being like, you know, just kind of like uh, just belting it all out. Like, oh, I'm sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to die and the universe is too big and I just don't know how to, you know, I can't uh, wrap my mind around all these questions. And I remember him just sort of like he had a big white beard and he he like breathed in and he's like, mm, and he was like, what's so wrong with death? And I even him saying that, like that line of thinking, I was like, oh, my God, you just blew my mind, you know? So when I came out, uh, I feel like my junior year, I really came out um, of all of this. And, you know, I I, uh, I stopped taking the medicine mm-hmm. and I was seeing this cool therapist for the first time. And I was performing more and more around town and I was meeting touring bands were coming through and I was helping book shows. And all of it kind of had to do with one another. You know right. what I mean? And I also just sort of had this revelation. And at that point, I was so far behind in school and I had so much to do to make it up. And I'd been sent to this alternative school which is actually a pretty cool program. And I think it's done a lot of good for a lot of kids. But once I was there, I was just kind of like, there's no real reason for me to finish high school. Mm-hmm. And then I took my GED and my parents were really cool about it because I think they had seen how much I'd struggled and how much I hated it. So I think they, you know, they were really nervous about it. And certainly my sister never had done anything like that. And she'd always played way by way more by the rules than I had, but they were cool about it. And they signed the papers and I took the GED and then, and then it was funny because then my life became this thing where, you know, when you're a kid and you drop out of high school, you think it's going to be incredible. You know, you think you're going to walk out the door and it's just going to be incredible. But then you're like, oh, man, like all my friends are in school <laughs> and I've got nothing to do. Um, I guess I have to get a job. And so I just I, I had a couple of shitty jobs and I hung around Kansas City for about a year, um, which was also really good and important for my story just because. I had this year, I kind of, I call it my loser year where I really had no ambition and I just really like floated around town and worked some shitty jobs and just kind of smoked cigarettes all day long and was just pretty lost and confused. And, you know, like I'd been very inspired to drop out of high school and I felt like I had all these things I wanted to do and I hadn't really done any of them. 
And then I basically, I, I, I convinced myself that if I didn't move to New York, basically right as I turned 18, that I would just never leave Kansas City and I would just end up living a sad life there. So I left shortly after I turned 18 and then, uh, I mean, it's the best decision that I ever made. Right. Because New York is where you met your bandmates and mm-hmm. all that shit. Exactly. It's where I met Woods and it's where I joined Woods and... You know, there's a long version of the story, but it, I was there for like two years. Like New York, initially, I I did go out there with a guitar. I actually took the train. I'd only been on a plane once in my life as an early teen, like 13, 14. And so I really couldn't wrap my mind around the concept that I could suddenly go from Kansas City geographically, that I could be in New York City in two hours. It was too much for, you know, and I'm still having all these like residual echoes of like, you know, uh, the panic attack stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to take myself out of this environment too quickly or it'll be too much for me. I'll break my mind, you know? My mind just kind of got put back together. So I took a, I took an Amtrak train and I stopped in Chicago because I had some friends who were going to college there. And then I stopped again in Cleveland because I had a childhood friend who was living there. And, you know, I thought to myself, if I get too scared, I can always just get back on the train and go back to Kansas City. But, um, you know, I continued on and after Cleveland, I got on the train and I went to New York and, it was really, it was just, it was amazing. It was like a movie. It was truly like a movie. Like I, I think New York's one of those places that you can move to and you can have the worst time in the world. You know, things can go so completely wrong in that place. It, it's like they'll either go completely wrong or they'll go completely right. And right. I was very fortunate that it really just went, everything about it was just incredible. And though I went with the guitar and, you know, I always was playing guitar and I always wanted to be playing music. I didn't have anything like, I'm going to come here and be the singer songwriter in this town or something. Because it seems so big, I was like, I just want to go observe, you know. I just want to like go there and and be a part of it at all, and even that was enough. And so I did that for about two years, and then fate sort of just handed me this, uh, you know, this opportunity where I I met Jarvis and Jeremy from Woods, and they they needed a bass player, and they asked me to play bass, and that that kind of began the journey that I'm still on. Did you continue writing just sort of alone, your own songs during that entire time, even while? You were playing bass and collaborating with those guys. Absolutely. And I will say, though, it's funny, like, you know, it's a big fish in a small pond sort of thing. Like in Kansas City, it seemed like I was this good songwriter. But the moment I was in New York, you know, I remember my third day in New York ever. I went to this, uh, there's this promoter called Todd P. Mm-hmm. Maybe you remember. And Todd P. had put on this um, acoustic show on Roosevelt Island. All these bands were playing. This like, was a great time to be a young new it was, band in New York and Brooklyn. It was so incredible. Yeah. Like it was so because it was what was happening in Kansas City, but was suddenly with thousands of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like or like a thousand people. Right. And everything that was cool about Kansas City, like the, the little bit that was cool about it, was it was a big part of New York, you know? And so I remember going to the it's my third day in New York. It's so photogenic, like in, you're in Roosevelt Island, which is, you know, between Queens and Manhattan, and you're like, she can't believe the fucking view. And I remember Woods played and Meneguar, their other band, and Matt and Kim played. I met Kim, which was one of the first people I met, and it was really funny. She came up to me and um, she just started talking to me. She could tell I was like alone, and she started. She's like, "Oh, me and my boyfriend have this band called Matt and Kim. We're going on a tour." And I remember being like, "Matt and Kim, band name like that is never going to go anywhere." <laughs> <laughs> but I saw all these great bands, and um, so suddenly I was like, "Oh, I'm not even going to try to play guitar in this town. You know, like I'm not even going to try to sing. Like, who am I compared to these people?" Um, but then when I joined Woods, it did give me some confidence, you know, but, and being under Jeremy and Jarvis sort of like being, uh, schooled by those guys, like they had been at it so long. I was 19 and they were like 29 and mm-hmm. Jeremy is so creative and he, you know, he had the Woods' label, he's signing all these amazing bands and 
I mean, really just changed everything. The first tour that I did with him was in Europe. You know, I'd never been to Europe in my whole life. Never thought I'd ever go. And just sort of being in that environment, because we all lived in a house together in Bushwick. And, uh, I, you know, just around Jeremy writing songs constantly. And I just saw that, like, oh, wow, this is like an actual way of life. Like, you could actually do this. You know, you might have to make a lot of sacrifices or maybe not make as much money or whatever. But, like, you can actually be a, a working musician. I, I want to talk a bit about uh, lyrics and, and themes and, and things like that, because it definitely seems like a couple of things you've mentioned in this conversation so far, particularly like travel, traveling and death, mm-hmm. right? It seemed like the, kind of to me, like two of the most recurring motifs sure. in your music. I mean, do you, you know, it has it been kind of a transparent part of the process to you that this curiosity or uh dread or sort of the mystery of death is like something that you're aware is a thing you want to keep writing about absolutely and i think it's it's just a little i can't even fight it you know it's just something that i'm so inherently interested in or just comes out so naturally you know and i think that's for a couple reasons you know some of that spawned from the sort of panic attack sort of situation um, of thinking of like the world at large, but that kind of got tucked away. But then when I moved to New York, I I made a friend who was my best friend. His name was Jamie Ewing, and he's very close with you know with, with like Justin and my whole New York crew. And he was really kind of like the king pin of this this whole crew. He was in a, a really great punk band called Bent Out of Shape, and he was just he was like this crazy you know larger than life sort of character who he had you know he was just kind of like the the main staple of this certain scene that I fell into and. I kind of like worshiped this guy from afar and then we ended up becoming best friends. And like for the last 10 months of his life, we would like spend almost every day together. And it's like talking about like how I fell in love with third eye blind, you know, like I fell in friend love with my, my friend Jamie. And, you know, I, I've heard Phil Elvrum talk about this in recent interviews since, uh, you know, his, his, his wife passed away, but you know, he's like, I was always singing about death or always concerned with death or like felt like I had something to say about death. And then when my wife passed away, I learned that it's very real. It became this other subject, you know, mm-hmm. because you do think everyone's going to think about it because, you know, it happens. But until it hits you, um, you know, and you're like at ground zero of, of a blast like that, you know, you you start to think about it differently. But uh, all this is just to say that, Jamie, as we're sort of in this honeymoon period of our friendship, within was, we've been friends for about a year, best friends for about a year. He passed away from a from a drug overdose. And that, I, that just, oh, you know, I couldn't help but become fascinated with death, you know? So I think that, like, that, that, that continues to this day, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm still writing songs that are inspired by him or his death, and um, it's just had a big impact on me. Right. I mean, as you, the longer that you're writing songs, especially just that you release under your own name, I mean, do you, do you feel like you walk toward those, like, recurring themes, or do you try and... You know, to what extent when you're editing yourself, are you trying to edit out the themes that you come back to, you know, or is it sure? Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think as the records go on, you don't want to like get into the situation where you only write about one thing, you know. Um, But at the same time, I'm not I'm not too afraid of um, of of going uh, of referencing something I've referenced before. In fact, I kind of like to look at those as like you know, like little road maps to your, to your albums or something. Mm-hmm. And you can connect the dots here and there and be like, Oh, you mentioned this character. Well, it's not just the death ago. thing. It's the, also I've noticed there's something about 
uh, like phases of life like babies you sing about uh-huh. baby i mean obviously you were in a band called babies but you sing a lot about being the perspective of from being a little baby to being like a person who's about to die or sure something. sure yeah that it, that good good eye um, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny like you're literally mentioning this and i'm like i wrote a, a song recently that i haven't recorded that's about that same thing oh wow i don't yeah just th- things that I, I that i just find you're intri- interesting you're, you're intrigued you're intrigued you you seem to be sort of like permanently intrigued by i do that. and it's, it's it's like um it's just something that inspires me it's just what conjures up it's a muse i suppose you and know? then so the traveling thing too was it taking that train trip that kind of sparked the interest in you know like the classic troubadour thing of like songs mm-hmm. about where you are songs but obviously you have a lot of songs that are about the inspiration that a place provides absolutely and you know i think some of that comes from my childhood from moving around so much mm-hmm. so young i i distinctly remember like i i liked it i rem- I you know i liked uh going on these trips with my parents and putting all of our stuff in a van and moving away i loved hotels i remember that which i'm really eating my words with now because it's just like i, I rem- you know i just wanted to always stay at hotels and I, I remember when we'd finally get to our destination we'd get to the new house or whatever I'd be like, oh i just want to go back to a hotel and now I'm like, oh, I can't. Another fucking hotel. I'm gonna puke. <laughs> but um, a hotel though, when you're a kid, is a special zone. It's like Disney World or yeah. something. You know, the ice machine. So yeah, so you you enjoyed that as a kid, but also yeah, I mean, do, do you do you find when you're traveling still that I mean, there obviously there's a song called Savannah on the new album, yep. and you know this stuff I'm sure is not literal or or whatever, but. Do you feel like when you're touring, when you're traveling, that you're like, ooh, this is this place could bring a song on? Like, Absolutely. This, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Savannah is a perfect example because the song is called Savannah, but it's actually about New York. But I was like, I can't write another song about New York. So I'm going to call it Savannah, which is a city I've never been to, but I really want to go to. And maybe if I write a song called Savannah, it'll get me there. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a double thing right there. Speaking to both of your points. Katie and I were on a road trip recently. We were driving uh, to uh, from Kansas City to, to El Paso, and we stopped in Amarillo, Texas. And Katie was making fun of me because we pulled in, and I was like, I love it here. I was like, I love Amarillo. I was like, it's so Amarillo. You know, like, I've never been to Amarillo, Texas, but this is exactly what you think Amarillo, Texas would be like. And I don't know what it is, but I just love, I love cities. I mean, that's like the, the whole thing of city music. And, like, I just love, I just love it. You know, I... It's why sounds, you love a village girl. It's why I love a village girl. It sounds stupid. It sounds like I'm the, the mayor or something, but I'm like, I love people and I love cities <laughs> and I love, you know, like. I love I, hotels. I love hotels. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I'm fascinated, fascinated by these places. I'm fascinated by, you go to any place and there's like, there's, there's so many, everyone's just so distinctly a person from that place. You know what I mean? You meet someone from Amarillo, Texas, and they'll say something a certain way, and you're like, man, only in Amarillo, you know? Yeah. And they probably have this pride about Amarillo in the same place that someone from Philly has Philly pride, or like, you know, I, I just, I'm fascinated by all of it. And I feel like there's this thing in the middle of the country, in Kansas, like, especially, like you're in the, the very direct center of America. It's a little bit void of an accent. It's a little bit void of like, it's grasping for a few different cultures. Like, oh, there's we had jazz and there's some barbecue. But it's not like, it doesn't have that much of an identity, you know? It's like the whole plain, like the plainsman thing or like a plain Jane, you know? It's like, we all kind of look very basic. But I think with that, it's like, you can kind of take on any 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 personality or something, you know? Like, it's enough like every other place that you never feel too out of place. Like, when I went to New York, I was like, this is definitely bigger than Kansas City and more happening. But I feel like Kansas City trained me well for a place like this. Right. And 
I don't know. I think when you're from a white bread, sort of like peanut butter and jelly sort of town, (laughs) (laughs) everywhere is going to blow your fucking mind. Like, I'm really happy that I grew up where I grew up because, you know, when I moved to New York, I remember like... I have so many best friends from that, that time in my life are still best friends in, in my life. But there are these New York City kids who at like 17, they were like already like, oh, I had a drug problem in my early teens and now I'm <laughs> over it. Now I'm sober. And, you know, and like now, you know, uh, oh, my dad is like best friends with the guitar player from that band. And uh, this uh, actor, is, you know, is our fucking mailman. Or something. You know, not really, but you know what I'm saying? And I was just like, wow, like you just... But, you know, for me, just, I'd be like, there's the Brooklyn Bridge! Oh, my God! You know? Yeah. And I, I just freak out about the small things, and I still feel like that, that that person. And now, having moved back to Kansas City, I feel like that's sort of reignited it. Maybe I was getting a little jaded there for a second, having lived in uh, L.A. and New York for so long, and I was starting to be de- desensitized to some sort of magic things. But now, back in boring old Kansas, you know, when I leave it, I'm like, everything comes to life. Well, that's also because you're when you're in Kansas for long stretches, you're relaxed because of the backyard hot tub sauna exactly scenario. I've that got... is a very pimp upgrade to. Uh, <laughs> it is you're a just pimp like upgrade. it's affordable living and it's luxury in my own yard. There's really I was talking to my friend Alex Bleeker who plays in that band Real Estate uh, recently, and he was in Bolinas, California, and he was saying, "Tell me about his living situation." He's like, "So what's your spot like in Kansas City?" And I was like, "Well, I own a house. It's just me, and you know, Katie lives here sometimes, and I have a hot tub, and I just built a studio, and I got a." And he was like, this sounds like the most like American thing. Like, it really does feel like this weird sort of like old notion of America. Like, I've earned some money and I'm now going to, you know, like buy something nice for myself. Yeah. Which is something I didn't do for a very long time. I just lived in like the cheapest, craziest uh, closet and called it a room for the longest time. But it's, 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 I'm guessing you found since you've had this, since you've had this house back there that. It's probably replicate. It keeps you fresh, yeah. For it really does. To, like getting jaded from just like oh another party with all my friends. Fuck that. I yeah, to stay home. Absolutely, <laughs> it is really good. You know, like this. Like I'm on this press trip right now in L.A. and I just got back from one in Europe and I go to New York tomorrow to to continue it. And I get to have two two weeks at home in Kansas City before then going to New York for rehearsal and beginning my tour. And I'm like. Oh. I can't wait for that. You know. So you you've been yeah because I mean I remember you posting a bunch of stuff. Uh, I guess over the summer, um, from whatever wood paneled space at home. Your yes. Your it looks like the song. I know. But it's not uh, good. Good. Good eye on all the wood. I, yeah, it's I, nice. I it's a nice vibe. Yeah, the wood's a good vibe. Yeah. Um. W- sort of. Yeah. Where do you go now when you're in in kind of songwriting mode? Oh, it's been, it's been Kansas for a while, but the truth is, you know, like I just wrote a couple of songs on my press tour in Europe, you know, I right. always, you always have your guitar with you and I understand why some people wouldn't be able to write on tour. It's a lot of other stuff is filling that space in your brain perhaps, but I've always written so well on tour and because that thing comes to life when you're on tour where you just suddenly things make more sense or you get this clarity, you know, mm. because you're never here or there. You're always kind of in between and it's kind of like this perpetual state of you're not asleep and you're not awake. Mm. I don't know. I feel like my mind becomes a blank canvas and that's where my ideas always settle in or they, they get planted and then I'm able to like take them back to a place like Kansas city or even when I lived here, you know, I take them back home and kind of refine those thoughts. And those are usually what become my songs. And your, your song style obviously is very talky. Um, how, how do the sort of writing lyrics part and the, and the, and the arranging and the melody and all that stuff, 
because you know a lot of songwriters I, I would say the vast majority of songwriters i talk to describe a process like that classic paul mccartney yesterday ham and eggs mm-hmm. story about like it's the ham and eggs is a great example of like it wasn't it just was that those were the syllables those were sure, the sounds yes. or whatever yeah you're just fumbling your way through it until words start to start to pop up but in your in your sort of you know typical song style you know i would imagine that that can't be the way it happens it's so based on what the words are well it is a little bit actually i mean it, there's that thing yeah you you start writing music and then gibberish comes out and then you start to like plug in words that fit the gibberish that does happen a little bit but i'll always have a sort of like it's almost like i already always have the title you mm-hmm. know like oh i just I, I came up with this thing i want to write a song called harlem river you know like okay i, I was walking next to the harlem river and what I love how those words sound and how they feel. And I had this feeling when I was next okay. to it. And so okay. like, is it, there a visual? Is there something, is it like a thing? Are you, is the song trying to describe something you can see in your mind already? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, you know, d- uh, definitely. And right. it's, it's almost like, um, a lot of times I almost have to like dumb myself down to write a song because if I'm just, if I'm playing a guitar and I'm playing the chords, you know, uh, C to F to, to D, I'll be like, that's too boring. That's too conventional. Like, I'm I'm just bored by that. But if I'm playing that on like a a piano and I don't know that I'm playing the the C to F to D, I'll be like, oh man, I've I've these this feels really good. You know, I'm gonna write a song out of this. But sometimes you have to trick yourself into like, thing. I I used to write a lot of songs primarily on this old Yamaha nylon string acoustic guitar I have that only had four strings because I felt like that kept me from realizing what chords I was playing and that kept it exciting. Mm. Because you're just trying to conjure this feeling, you know what I mean? And sometimes when you attach like a, a, a statistic or, you know, like like the chord to it, you're like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. It kind of takes the feeling out of it. So, yeah, you're always chasing this feeling, you know. And so, wait, you said you you have another album's worth of stuff already. You were saying you have new stuff already. I do. I'm not I, I guess wait, I'm not supposed to talk, about, supposed to talk yeah. about it. Okay. So I think that's probably a good this place was, for us This to was wrap great. Up. This is maybe the best interview, definitely on this trip that I've done. <laughs> Sweet. Um, so thank this you. This is the best interview you've done in Cyrus's bedroom. In Cy- absolutely. That is 100% <laughs> sure. All right. Well, thanks again to Kevin Morby for being awesome and for taking the time to chat for LSQ. And I've been pretty busy lately. That was a nice long interview. Yada, yada, yada. There's no archive clip in episode 26. Hope that's chill. The next episode out in a few weeks, I'm so excited to share with you. It features an interview with Perfume Genius's Mike Hadrius, who recently announced a new dance project that I'll tell you more about when we get to episode 27 in a few weeks. Reach me with feedback on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. And if you haven't subscribed yet, get in there. Thanks for listening. 